Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 99th episode of our podcast, yes, we are almost at episode 100, I interviewed Simon Lorenz, co-founder and co-CEO of Clara. Simon comes from a long family history of medical doctors, and it was his time working in a hospital during his teenage years that prompted him to take a different career path. He recognized the inefficiencies and challenges within the healthcare industry, and it became his passion, a passion to make a difference by improving the healthcare industry. Clara is a venture-backed company that was founded in 2013 with a mission to transform healthcare communication so every patient can receive great care. Its HIPAA-compliant messaging platform makes it easy for healthcare providers to communicate with their patients and with each other. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like all the details on Clara and how they are improving the healthcare industry and making it more efficient through their communication platform, discovery-based selling and why it is important for your business, especially for landing early adopter customers, how to know when you have product market fit, figuring out your pricing strategy, avoiding the Series A funding crunch, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Every Monday at 10 o'clock, we send out our New York Weekly Tech Buzz email. It is your one email a week to stay connected to all the must-know information from the local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, events, deals, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Simon. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So I was uh, doing a lot of homework on your background before this podcast, which is something I always do. And I found a little uh, interesting nugget out there. So as a teenager, you actually decorated your bedroom as a doctor's office. So, so what, what was the thought process behind that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I come from a family full of doctors. So from a great grandfather, grandfather, father, mother, uncles, aunts, sisters, cousins, all medical doctors. So I think all I kind of saw, and when I was very young, I, uh, I went as a child with my doctor to visit patients, and that's pretty much what I learned, and that's what I wanted to become. So I went to my father's uh, practice and, and just took, you know, the, the samples of bones, like these plastic bones, and put them in my room, and I wanted everything to be white and yeah, my, my, my family thought, I think, in the beginning that I was a little bit crazy, especially my father. He was bored. He said, okay, this guy is going, following the family tradition way too early. So he, that's why when I was 16, I started working in a hospital because my father said, hey, you have to stop dreaming. Just start doing something. And then I started working with the nurses in a hospital and really quickly learned uh, my lesson there. And it sounds like that was kind of, it opened your eyes to what, you know, you bucked the trend because you, you know, you have your PhD, but it's not, you know, becoming a, a, an actual, you know, medical doctor. You wanted to fix healthcare. So how did that come about of, of wanting to focus on that, that side of the equation? Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, that was kind of the starting point. I started realizing how tough the healthcare uh, world is and not only from the eyes of the gods and whites being the doctors, but like looking at the nurses, looking at the patients, looking at the interaction there, I really was like doing the hard work. And then um, by the time I was 18, I started assisting my father during his orthopedic uh, operations. So hip surgeries, knee surgeries, uh, atroscopies, um, and uh, several different other uh, uh, surgeries. And then I started having a lot of questions, which my father was not, didn't want to answer because he's not a 
you know, doctors and not naturally businessmen. So yeah, I, I got introduced to the manager of this hospital and had a lot of questions there and also realized that they, um, you know, in, in, in the clinical field or in the hospital side, they're rather administering the status quo. They don't really like change. So then he referred me to someone else and that person said, hey, I don't think, um, I think you should start working in, 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 in a more business savvy industry to learn there and to see if really the medical field is something for you, which I then did. And I worked at, you know, one of the biggest rental car businesses in the world, sixth rental car. I worked in the marketing department, um, directly under the CMO and, um, and there I really realized very quickly how customer centric a company can be. And that really inspired me. And I saw a lot of other things as well, like processes, organizations, how happy on the one side, the employees were how customer centric the company was uh, set up. And that got me thinking like, why don't I learn from the more business savvy industries and try to apply methodologies and tools uh, and approaches into the healthcare space. And that then got me, um, you know, I went then in a, you know, management consulting company working both in the healthcare space plus in, uh, in, in, in other industries and in parallel wrote my PhD, PhD thesis exactly about that topic, how to adopt, um, you know, how to learn from other industries and uh, uh, adopt that for the medical or healthcare industry. It's interesting how it came full circle. And, and I did notice your thesis was uh, written around improving quality and efficiencies of healthcare. So, so what was your, your general thought process for that thesis? Pretty much the same as right now, um, but um, so I wanted to learn from more businesses, every industries, and then um, see which tools and approaches um, make sense in terms of how to optimize processes, how to reorganize, how to optimize the service portfolio, and then um, um, I didn't just want to apply this for the entire healthcare scene. So what I did, I um, characterized um, the different health healthcare pr uh, providers. So in this case, hospitals, because not, not every single hospital is different, right? Um, if you're like a public hospital and you're very huge, that's very different to a very specialized and private hospital. So I segmented these um, and I applied different kind of uh, approaches and methodologies and tools that are that are very much focused on that specific uh, segment of, of a hospital. Got it. Okay. And, then, and like during this time, so like, where were you? Like, like where were you born and, and during, during your studies here? Um, so in that time I was actually working already as a management consultant okay. and so I was doing management consulting. And on the weekends I was writing my PhD thesis, which Got was it. a pretty heavy, intense time. Um, and I did this over three to four years. Um, so, and then after that, I jumped right into a startup. So I kind of like to torture myself. <laughs> um, no. And, and so, yeah, I, I was still in Germany, um, at that time. And what, what is the really interesting part for me is when I, while I was writing these thesis and while I was working as, as a management consultant, I realized that technology is the fundamental you know, lever that's going to make or break, or that's going to have the biggest impact in the healthcare system, right? I was seeing how technology has previously transformed other industries like financial, like transportation, you know, all, everybody knows that. And I was curious, how can we have that same effect in the healthcare industry? Because 
it is a slow-moving industry, but there's so much technology out there that can help make this, um, you know, healthcare accessible and equal for every single patient. So at what point did you decide, hey, there's an opportunity here and, and I'm actually going to jump in and, and start my own company? Um, I realized this um, while writing my PhD thesis because I was very much close to the healthcare providers and I realized how much rejection there is and I, and I knew that innovation is not going to come out of a hospital. They're just going to administer they're just going to administer the status quo but really change is not going to be managed within this hospital. So, so it has to come from outside. And I felt such a strong urge to revolutionize this um, and help improve the healthcare system, becoming more patient-centric, becoming more efficient. So um, because I, I believe at the end of the day, if it's not becoming more patient-centric and more efficient, it, the whole um, healthcare system is going to collapse. And that's true for not only the U.S., but um, Germany and other developing countries too. Yeah, I and mean, what were the trends that you noticed? Uh, like, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with the healthcare systems abroad. I'm certainly familiar with what the inefficiencies here in the U.S., but is it similar abroad? Yeah, very, very much. Like, you, you can see that the number of disease cases are going up, yet the number of doctors are pretty much stagnant, right? So you have an inefficiency gap. Like, who's going to take care of all of these um, uh, patient cases, right? And the number of patient cases is increasing because... Demographic evolution, people are getting older. We find more ways to treat patients, right? A lot of the time when people talk about healthcare, they say, like, why is healthcare moving so slow? Well, in the, on the clinical side, on the clinical R&D side, we're moving super fast, right? We are able to clone, uh, you know, uh, uh, mammals. I mean, we're able to clone human beings almost, right? Um, but, like, on the service side, the technology side and improving the, the quality of service and the business side, we're really much lagging behind. Now, how did you ultimately meet your, your co-founder to start a company? And, you know, you don't have a tech background, right? So, it's, and, you know, how did, how did you start to build a, a tech, you know, technology company? Yes. So Simon and I, we go way back. Like we knew, we got to know each other when we were children. He was playing with my cousin and I thought, who the hell is this guy? Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was kind of the starter. And um, then, but it really started then. So we knew each other for a very long time, but it just really started clicking um, when we went uh, on a humanitarian project in the Himalayas, India. And we were helping like a dental um, a group, a group of dentists there to help uh, people um, get proper dental care, right? And that's when we first started. Um, you know, bonding very intensively. And then ever since that, um, we've been friends. Yeah. And what was the original idea? Like, we're going to talk about Clara today and what you guys are doing, but uh, there's obviously a path to get there. So what, what was the kind of the original idea and some of the, the evolution over the time? So when Simon and I started, I, as I said, I came from a, doc, a family full of doctors and Simon himself had um, a life-changing and I would call it. Um, so he was uh, on a trip with his family, with his younger daughter, and the daughter had a rash. And then his wife, and they were in Italy, and his wife um, wanted to pack their stuff and leave. And then um, what he did, he took his phone, 
at that time, uh, an iPhone and um, took a picture of the rash and sent it to a befriended dermatologist. And she gave him an answer that they just need to buy this lotion and everything is done. And basically it was just a, you know, or a, a sun rash and they didn't have to do anything. They bought the lotion and everything was done and they were able to um, keep on doing their vacation as planned, which was which made Simon very happy, obviously. Um, and um, from my perspective, you know, um, like I said, I come from a family full of doctors, but the, the big benefit of this is, you know, before I go to a doctor, I was always like on the phone talking to my family. One of my family members being um, their dermatologists, uh, plastic surgeons, um, ophthalmologists, ENT, orthopedic. So every time there was a problem, I was just, you know, talking to them. And the minute I was able to send a text message and send a photo, I was sending them exactly that. And then when I left, and if I had to have a, have a surgery, then, um, then, you know, I was still continuing the conversation like this. So that kind of gave us, the, and, and we, I, I always loved the experience because it's just so convenient. And in, in Simon's case, he kind of didn't have to, you know, travel back to Germany or go to like a doctor in Italy, which his wife didn't feel comfortable with. Um, so it's just a very convenient and efficient way if you um, just use the technology, the simple technology as we have today. And that's kind of launched it. And then we started with, um, I can go very deep into this whole conversation because, um, or in the history of Clara, because we started with a B2C teledermatology application. Mm -hmm. um, so, which was basically, you took a picture of your skin problem, um, answered a medical questionnaire, paid 39 bucks. And then within uh, 24 hours, you had an answer from a board certified dermatologist uh, telling you what you have and what you should do, right? That's how we started. We got thousands of cases and 98% and of the cases were able to be diagnosed. But then we realized that we were just a standalone solution. So there was no continuum of care. It was just like you know, very transactional. And then what happens if you have something more serious? Like, you know, if you send in a mole and that seems not to be benign, so it's, it's more serious, what are you going to do after that, right? And um, so we then talked to our doctors because we was working very, very closely with our doctors. They then, uh, you know, said, why can we not use this for our existing patients? So then we allowed doctors to offer online visits for their existing patients, which was almost like if, you, if you're an acne patient and you have routine follow-up visits, you could do these follow-up visits um, um, online. The thing though with this is it didn't, you know, it, nobody really did a lot of, of these online follow-up visits and was, we were like very, very excited as you are in a startup and suddenly nothing happens. Nothing happens. <laughs> and, and, and so, but the other thing is that got us to talk to our customers in that case, the providers and say like, all right, but you want to continue com uh, communicating with your patients. And then um, they said, yes. Um, and then we um, realized that, um, so they started then using Clara for um, sending out biopsy results to their patients, which was super interesting. And that, then we really could see the traction going up massively. And, um, and then we, you know, inquired why this, why they love doing it so much. They said simply because they used to have to, you know, play phone tag all the time with patients in order to convey them a very simple message. And with Clara, they can just send them the biopsy result 
and it's and they can use a template to you do that right um so they don't have to type it out the patient gets it on their phone as a text message clicks on the link is in in a secure environment and can read that uh, the biopsy results are benign and that's how we started and that's um alone that saved them hours per day a single person well, let's fast forward now. Like, so, you know, obviously that's kind of the aha moment of, okay, here's kind of the direction of the product, but let's fast forward to, uh, Clara today and what you guys are up to. Yeah. So, um, Clara right now, we are a HIPAA compliant um, communication platform that allows, um, providers to communicate with the patients and each other. And it makes everything it's super fast, it's super convenient, and it's super easy. And at the end of the day, we save the provider hours and their staff two hours, two to three hours per day. And alone from switching, being on the phone and playing phone tag with the patient onto messaging. And at the same time, you have the patient who now benefits from a more a provider or a practice that is working more efficiently and gets basically an answer faster. Right. And so patient satisfaction increases. And at the same time, there's also, you know, um, the, the fact that they can now message with their doctor. But at the end of the day, patients care that they get an answer and that they get an answer fast. And that's what we do right now. The cool thing about us is also that providers can share patients um, with other medical organizations. So we don't only have um, private practices um, on the platform, but um, so first of all, they can you know, exchange patients between themselves, thinking of patient referrals, but they can also share patients with pharmacies, labs, in the future, potentially um, insurances, right, to facilitate the communication because there's still a lot, a lot of time wasted just by people playing phone tag about getting simple information in the healthcare system. And you know who suffers? It's the patients. 2,000 patients die because of um, lack of proper communication, right? That is insane. That's insane. And, and then you see stats, um, and coming back to the point where I said, you know, the clinical part is not the issue. It's more the service element because most of the complaints, 96% of the complaints in the medical field are not clinically related. They're actually only related to, to service, Right. And, and if you think about what like what healthcare is, healthcare is a service. Part of the service is the clinical part, the procedure and the surgery. And the rest of it is all communication or most of it is communication. So that's what we are doing. We are trying to um, tr transform um, communication in healthcare so that every patient can receive great care. How did you get early adopter customers? Like you talked about earlier that people in, the, in this profession, the healthcare medical slower to adopt change, kind of like how things are status quo. How did you go about getting those early adopters to, to try this out? Yeah, so Simon and I, we hit the road. Um, we knocked on a lot of doors and um, we talked to customers in person. I think even at the, in the beginning, I really think that you have to be, you have to do all the things that don't scale and you have to talk to your customers directly. I mean, everybody says kind of the same. I'm not saying anything new, but you really have to be in the medical practice. You have to um, um, first sell them. And, 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 and it's more a discovery-based selling, so it's not a transactional selling. You go in there and you ask a lot, a lot of questions. And you're trying to figure out how can you add value and in which um, 
segment you, uh, which um, job you can add value. And then you isolate that job and then you try to fix exactly that job. And um, you have to do this very hands-on, I think, I believe. And you talked about discovery sales uh, process. Um, so, th- so that's pretty much thinking about, uh, you know, hey, we can add value in lots of different ways, but it's narrowing down to the pain where they're willing to spend money on providing a solution that's going to save them money on, on the back end, right? Yeah, discovery sales for me is really uh, you, um, you ask a lot of open-ended questions. Um, right to, you know, it could be as simple as um, what, are, what are your biggest challenges right now? Right, and then say like, yeah, um, I want to have new patients, and like every, t- but every time we, I want to grow the practice. But let's say, yeah, let's say someone says I want to grow the practice. They say, okay, um, you have all the systems in place that help you grow the practice, and then they get really big eyes and say like, what do you mean? Like, do you have the systems to support the, your practice? And then you think, well, if you if you think about it, if you're getting more and more patients, you have to hire more and more headcount also in, in the call center and the front desk and all of that kind of stuff. And then you start having a conversation as if you're kind of their consultant and you're trying to identify what which solution works best for them. And whenever they make claims like, um, yeah, we... Uh, you know, if, if they say um, we want to grow the practice, then you also have to ask them why. The simplest thing in discovery-based selling, if you don't know anything about discovery-based selling, the only question that you need to be asking all the time is why. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get down where you basically turn the selling process around where the prospect um, is telling you, is basically selling you that they need you. That's the that it's the thing. consistency of the why, right? It's not a service level answer. There's the deeper why, the deeper why, the deeper why. You have to go deep. And, you know, this is like, it's very easy to say that. And some customers get fed up with this, right? Because they're like, I know my problem. I just want to see the solution. Just show me. In these situations, you have to be ready. So it's good to have like a presentation where you just give them something because all, the whole selling process in general is about adding value. But now we're kind of drifting away. This is or later stage in the beginning, just go in there and just try to understand what the customer problems are and how you can solve them. At what point were you at a, you know, you felt you had the product and it's time to scale sales. Like what was that? What was the thinking behind, you know, following through so you're not overextending or whatever the case may be. So I want to say something to this because um, we did a lot of mistakes and we only, we learned a very hard lesson and spent a lot of venture money unnecessarily because we started scaling too quickly. We thought we had product market fit. We didn't because we also didn't know what it means to have product market fit. And I would argue that a lot of companies don't have a clear idea about what it means to have product market fit. So just as an asterisk, so all that I'm so saying... So you meaning entrepreneurs that have like a false, like, you know, they're seeing false results, false positives that aren't achievable at a scale. Yeah, they I mean, for our case, it was true. We thought we had product market fit, but we actually didn't, right? Like, take, take the teledermatology B2C uh, as an example. We already started, like, we had 30 employees at that time. And then we completely changed our business. Like, we went from a B2C to a SaaS-based uh, uh, solution, not even talking about uh, what that we had to re, um, redesign our whole products, right? We had a 
very like patient focused. Now it had to be provider focused, and the patient application wasn't that important at, at that stage anymore. So it's that is very very painful if you come to that conclusion very late. So what? So the question comes back to how do you know when you have product market fit? So very high level, I believe that the company evolution has three stages. One is product market fit. The second stage is go to market fit. And the third stage is then when you scale and build a moat. So product market fit stage, the thing that you focus on the most is customer success and anything else is not important. So you just want to optimize the whole business for customer success. So the, the, the sales executives or account executives that you hire, they're not like transactional salespeople. They should be salute, like they should be discovery people. In general, I would even recommend maybe not hiring a, a typical salesperson, but hiring like an entrepreneurial guy that has a product mindset behind that and put them in the sales position. Um, also, pricing. I wouldn't solve for unit economics or anything. Just I would solve for customer success. What makes the success for the customer uh, as easy as possible. And there are a lot of different other things, but like how you then know when you, and the biggest, yeah, the most important thing is how do you measure customer success? Let's say you're a business. Most of the people say churn, right? Like if you have churn, then you know whether the customer was successful, which is kind of true, but it's a lagging indicator. What you want to identify is a leading indicator because once you have churn, it's already too late. And let's say you're 12 months, you sell 12 months contracts like we did, you would have to wait 12 months in order to know whether your customers are successful. That's, that's like, that's an, a life of an entire startup. So you can't do that. So you have to define a leading indicator and there are like different um, metrics that you can use. And you, in the beginning, you just have to go with your gut and a little bit of data, I would say, and just see what other companies are doing out there. So Facebook, for example, if you're a network connection play, they say you have to at least connect with 10 friends within seven days. Uh, Slack has that you have, that the team has to have sent 2000 messages. Um, HubSpot um, has the example that they have to at least adopt the five of the 20 features in there. And um, once you have that metric defined, then you say, okay, um, what percentage of the customers do I want to have reached this, this, this customer success metric? And um, normally, um, you know, you can correlate it with the churn number that you want to accomplish, but normally, um, um, so you would say like, I want to have, you know, 20% annual churn. So you have to have 80% of the customers reach that. That could be a way to approach this. Um, but once you have then, and then you look at the cohorts, right? Every single, so every a cohort for me is, and what are the customers that we sold in January? That's a cohort. Customers that you sold in, in February, March, April. And then you look at these cohorts and you want to see these cohorts improve. That's the most important thing, right? You want to see these cohorts improve. And and then the, the 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 last thing that I would say to this is um, it's all about the actions that you implement into, in in the company, right? The number, like the percentage and the metrics, just like it's probably less important to what are you actually doing in the company, right? For example, that your marketing team only um, um, provides leads that um, are qualified, right? That your sales team only sells to customers that actually need the product that you onboard the, the, the customers in a very fast manner because the more time goes by in onboarding, 
the, the lower your success, right? And, and, and then product that they develop the features that are actually relevant. And then you move into the go-to-market phase where you then can optimize for unit economics. And once you have the customer success metrics in green, the unit economics uh, in green, then you can start adding, uh, going for scale. You can add one account executive per month, and if, but still monitoring how your customer success metric and unit economics metrics are doing. And if they are still green, you can add two account executives, three account executives. And if, if one goes in red, you pause. You don't scale more, right? You should first try to fix one of these. So that's kind of what I think makes sense. Now, you touched upon pricing earlier. And um, you know when you're kind of coming out of the gates, you're figuring it out. But once you do hit that scale, like how do you determine your, your pricing strategy at that point? Yeah, so one... Uh, it's not easy to say that. And I also have to, um, from our perspective, we're also figuring this out. Um, and, but what I think, um, once you want to go for a scale, um, you always have to, first of all, you know, it has to be an efficient business, right? So efficient business, I look at, in the early stages, you want to look at customer acquisition payback time. So it basically means how much um, are you paying to acquire customers versus what's your average selling price? And in the SMB space, that should be, um, you know, target should be less than six months. In the mid-market space, it should be around 12 months. In the um, enterprise, it can be a little bit higher, right? Um, so that's a way how to approach this. But then again, you can also... Um, you know, HubSpot had the approach that they said, like, hey, we want to make the threshold very, very low to get people hooked up on the product. And then we want to um, earn most of it with expansions, right? So I can't, there's no, there's no gold, silver bullet for everything. Um, you have to make uh, decisions and it also depends on your target audience. We, for example, we um, defined our pricing based on what providers are used to. Because like we couldn't like it's very difficult to come in to the medical market and say like hey we have a volume based or value based um, uh, pricing we priced it to what they're actually used to at the moment because otherwise it brings too much friction into the sales process and obviously you you spent time figuring that out through the discovery sales method of what their threshold was recommendation I would say keep the entry point low and focus on uh, expansion and show the customer that you can add value and then they stay a long-term customer and they, they keep on expanding and expanding. Uh, so with Clara, you, you know, you uh, closed an $11.5 million series A round of funding back in August and then you raised more capital this past March uh, from stage two and you talked about HubSpot. So Mark Roberge is, you know, part of the, the founding team for, for that firm. Um, you had to go through an evolution of your product and, you know, go raise more capital. So what's, what advice would you give to founders when you, you know, you've raised capital before you change the product, then you have to go for that series A funding crunch that people always talk about. Like, how, how do you avoid that? Uh, that's a good question. I think, um, the biggest advice, uh, you know, give yourself enough time, like that you don't come into this finance crunch. What we did Giving it is enough time to figure out your product and your go-to-market strategy. So why am I saying this? Um, we, in the beginning, we were hyped uh, very much, and then we came into a difficult phase. And then we had to finance ourselves almost like 
three months to the next three months. It was, and you cannot focus on like building the product and focusing on go to market because you're constantly fundraising. And so you're making this problem worse and worse and worse. What you really need to be doing is when you raise your round, raise your amount for minimum 12 months. I would even say plan on to raise around for 18 months. So you have 12 months to figure it out and six months to rate, to have kind of like a buffer and to raise the next round that I would just, um, give every founder as a, as a high recommendation and don't finance yourself month over month because you're just screwing up your business. And you just mentioned 18 months, 12 months for focus on products and go to market six months that's going to involve taking your eye off the ball of the business to raise that capital. How do you run an effective process of, of you know, meeting with the VCs and getting term sheets and, and obviously closing the round? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I like a lot of people say you have to treat it like a sales process. So I, I agree with like an enterprise sales process. I agree with that. But in end of the day, the most effective way, and that's why it's so important to get good investors into the door is your investor today is going to organize your financing round tomorrow. So you need to choose a VC that is, you know, good in the market and has a good portfolio that they're working with. Because, you know, your seed uh, uh, investors, they want to make sure that you raise your Series A. Your Series A investor wants to make sure that you raise your Series B. Because that's, you kind of then hand it over. So you need to make sure that, um, that you're raising the round with the right guys because they are going to organize your next round. And if you reach, I don't believe so much in cold outreach. I think the, the, the rounds, how we raise money was always like someone introduced us to uh, someone else. And that kind of puts kind of the quality check, quality check mark. Oh, this guy is putting his name behind this company. I respect that guy. I'm going to talk to these people. And you have to, that's what you have to be doing. Yeah. No, with, with the capital, you're scaling, growing. So what are you currently hiring for, for the team? Oh, yeah. So we obviously hiring um, on the engineering side, junior engineers and senior engineers. We're also hiring... Um, on, our, on the product side, we're hiring a product researcher. We're hiring uh, a product adoption manager and people for implementation. We're hiring a BI person. This is going to be a long list. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, hiring across the board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're hiring for 20 people. We're, we're growing very quickly, um, and the company is going to grow very, very strongly. But I think, um, uh, yeah, a, a BI person, demand gen, the adoption manager and account managers and implementation people, as well as the engineers is like top of mind right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're focused on building a company right now. So this might be an unfair question, but if, if you do have time outside of, of, of building a company, what do you like to do outside of work? Um, so, yeah, I think that's a very fair question. And I think it's not talked enough about this. Because if you're a founder, you're expecting yourself to beat yourself up every day and like work a long hours. And I've done this, and I've done this my entire career. As you, as I mentioned, I I wrote my PhD thesis while I was working as a management consultant, and then I was like went into a startup. I just don't believe that working long hours is the solution. I think working concentrated and focused is the best uh, best solution. So I believe in having breaks um, even during the day. So I don't know, everybody knows the situation where you like, you know, your mind is getting tired, right? 
and then you push on because you're like you're a founder you're strong you do all of this or you're an executive and you yeah i can do this but this is, these are the times i would argue you should have make a break you should make a break even if you know, obviously if the fire is burning and you have like something very important then you have to push on but like you have to make a break go outside go breathe in some fresh air don't talk about work or go with a colleague somewhere in the park i don't know just make a break um i also believe a lot in meditation so i meditate every day and i do sports every day every day either in the morning so i wake up between 5 30 and 6 a.m um um then get ready do sports um, um because i'm preparing for a big uh, cycling trip with my co-founder Simon and I don't want to just uh, see his behind all the time so I have to <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah um, so that's what I do and then I finish my training and then uh, I go to the office either directly or go home make myself a good breakfast and then meditate go to work and uh, yeah that's Do you have a method on, on how you structure your day? I know every day is a moving target and a week to, to week, but do you have a general framework of how you compartmentalize time so you can actually think deeply about certain things that have to do with the business versus being in the weeds all the time? Yeah, uh, time boxing helps. So what I do, like when I come into the company or what I, I want to be doing all the time, and I would say I do it 70% of the time because, you know, the other 30%, you know, you get this... Uh, crazy things happening mm -hmm. uh, but um i plan my day in the morning and then once in, in asana i'm a, i'm addicted to asana i use asana for everything mm -hmm. so first what i do i clean up my asana this and say what do i want to do, to do today and then that includes like strategic projects and where i want to think about strategic projects and then i time box them in my calendar so i block out that time so I first that first of all what this does is it makes me make realistic estimations for what i want to be doing that day and second of all um it also blocks people from just uh, uh, putting meetings on my calendar which is nice and then very important um, you have to put in pauses in your calendar. I, at least I have to do it. Otherwise, I don't pause. And a very nice trick of doing this is in your Google Calendar, there's a checkbox called Speedy Meetings. Take that off. That makes out of every half an hour meeting, it, it deducts five minutes. So it's a 25-minute meeting, 25 meeting. And out of every 60-minute meeting, makes it a 50-minute meeting. So then you gain time back a little bit so that's what i do um to get this done and then for the strategic thinking stuff i highly recommend like documenting it and having something as an output like writing something down writing down your thoughts and getting a document in front of yourself well simon thanks so much for taking the time for sharing all the great stuff that you're up to with clara and of course all this great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow there's, there's i mean just so much uh, that we covered so thank you so much Thank you very much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.